walks on water. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at sign number four, uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Um, as with that sign two weeks ago, this also is a sign that we already know. We've already, we've already heard about it from the other Gospels. We're familiar with it um, because Jesus walking on water, this incident is recorded both by Matthew and Mark, although Luke doesn't include it in his account. Well, all three accounts connect the incident directly with the feeding of the 5,000. According to all three accounts, the gathering that had been fed, it scatters. Jesus goes off by himself. The disciples get into a boat. At least four of them are professional fishermen. And they begin their journey across uh, the lake. And the lake, uh, which is known as the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, is an inland lake, some 18 kilometers north-south, some 10 kilometers east-west. That's a fair strip of open water. Um, and um, some of you may have been there. Um, at the 8.30 service, you've been there, Victoria? That's great. The 8.30, anyone else? A few others? And thank you. Um, the 8.30 service, two, two people had um, uh, been there. I haven't. But apparently it's surrounded by mountains, or at least hills, and uh, fierce cold winds can often fall, fall, particularly at night, fall off these mountains, creating dangerous stormy conditions on the water. And for sailors, these are treacherous waters. And we know from multiple sources that the fishermen of these waters were terrified of these sudden storms or squalls, um, sudden storms which could easily claim the, the small boats from which they did their fishing. Nevertheless, Peter... Andrew, James and John, and probably some of the other disciples as well, they are fishermen, and they're experienced sailors, and they know these waters well. According uh, to Matthew and Mark, it was just before dawn. Um, Matthew tells us that um, they'd gone out a considerable distance. Mark tells us that they were in the middle of, of the lake. And John, now the sailor fisherman, he gives us the actual distance, which was five or six kilometers from shore, which places them, irrespective of where they've started, it places them pretty much exactly in the middle of the lake. And uh, we uh, read that the wind was against them. They weren't in a storm, but conditions were adverse. Wind against them and choppy water, uh, large waves, rough water against them too. And then they see Jesus walking towards them uh, on the water. Uh, now, all three authors, Matthew, Mark, and John, they, they all understand what this is telling us about Jesus, that he walks on water, that he treads upon the seas. So what is this telling us uh, about Jesus? Well, um, something that we need to know is that in the Bible, uh, feet and shoes are a symbol of authority. Um, uh, when Moses, for example, Moses finds himself in the presence of God, he's told to take off his sandals. Not sure what he did with them then. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he threw them away. I don't know. Uh, but he took off his sandals, not because they were dirty or because they were profane, but rather because they were symbols of his authority to walk the land. And he's just been told, you are on holy ground. In other words, this ground belongs to God, not to you. Uh, and... and um, in the presence of God, no symbols of authority are ever appropriate. 
because he is in charge. Uh, if, if I was the captain of a Boeing 747, I might wear a nice hat, but in the presence of God, I'd take it off. If I was a king, it would be appropriate for me to wear a crown, uh, but not in God's presence. In God's presence, I, I take my crown off and lay it at his feet. He is king of kings and lord of lords. So it's not appropriate to wear symbols even of God-given authority in God's presence, and Yeshua is a sign of authority to walk the land. And indeed, as you may already know, if you sold land uh, in ancient Israel, you took off your sandal and you gave it uh, to the buyer. Thank you. Um, and that symbolically enacted the fact that the buyer now has the authority to walk on that ground. You've, you've sold it to him. So that's one thing to remember, that, that the, the act of walking on something, the act of placing your foot on something, your sandal is a symbol of authority. Now let's consider something else. How does the Bible begin? Well, in Genesis 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, the Bible depicts uh, the primordial universe as a vast ocean, tossing and violent, chaotic and unvaryingly empty, cold, dark, and hostile to life. Disorder, chaos. This chaos is without border or boundary. Up, down, left, and right, it's just endless sea. It is uniform. There is no diversity. There is no variety. There is no beauty. Now, in Jewish thought, uh, the ocean, the sea, it's often used as a symbol of that which is chaotic and, uh, and evil, uh, anti-life, but not evil in a personal or capricious or malicious sense. It's just impersonally destructive and desolate. Accidents happen. But in Genesis, there is God hovering above it, hovering above the disorder and chaos. He is sovereign. He is in charge. Not even the chaos of the oceans can stop God now from bringing order and beauty and variety into being. But when we look, actually, when we look with our eyes at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, actually, we can't see God. Why can't we see God? Because he's invisible. Because he's presence there is depicted as the Spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind of God. Now, wind can be very powerful and it makes huge changes, but you can't see the wind. It's real, but invisible. So too the Spirit of God. He's unlimited in power, but you can't see him. He's real, but invisible. Now, now, in seeing Jesus walking on the sea, walking on the oceans, treading with his sandals on the waters, what we're seeing is a picture of the fact that Jesus is sovereign. He puts his foot on chaos. What John is showing us is he's showing us Genesis 1 verse 2 all over again, but now God is not invisible. God is visible. Suddenly, God is visible 
in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. How does John start his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the point. God is now visible. You can now see him. In Jesus of Nazareth, the word became flesh. Well, Matthew, Mark, and John, um, they all understand this. Um, This is why they all include it. Matthew and Mark, they add quite a bit of detail to the story, showing it to be not just about who Jesus is, his identity, but also about what he's doing, sending his disciples on a mission, his disciples encountering adversity, and in the face of adversity, learning that they too have, have his authority to overcome adversity in his name. Uh, in his presence. But what we get with John is just a really stripped-down version. It's the shortest of all three accounts. It's kind of begun, middle, and over before you even know it's there. It's a really short account. He just just wants to strip away the details and just say, look at Jesus. Do do you understand who he is? Do you understand? And Jesus himself spelled it out to his disciples on the night before he died, Um, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. To to, to see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know God. Well, Now, although it was nearly dawn, and although the disciples had been rowing all night, and although it was dark and rough and stormy, and although the boat had only managed to get halfway across the lake, at the end of the account, John tells us that suddenly, strangely, miraculously, the boat with Jesus on board is at once at its destination. And that's kind of part of the sign, part of the miracle. They just seem to suddenly be there. Um, What are we to make of that? Um, I'm not really sure, but along with others, I think we're we're supposed to to, to remember and think of Psalm 107. He He guided them safely to their desired haven. What Psalm 107 does is it celebrates God's saving work in people's lives. All the different ways that God saves. Full and comprehensive salvation from all that destroys. He settles the refugee in safe cities. He frees the prisoner from his chains. He saves the rebellious from the hideous consequences of their sinful folly. And he saves the sailor from storm and tempest. 
God saves those who can't save themselves, and God saves people even from themselves. God saves people from personal evil, that is, uh, malicious wills sent, uh, set against God's will, and God saves people from impersonal evil. Uh, the insentient, which is to say the unthinking, the unaware, the insentient forces of chaos, chance, and randomness. I, I, I hope that kind of distinction between personal and impersonal evil is clear. Uh, personal evil wants to destroy you, and you should take that personally. Impersonal evil wants to destroy you. Nothing personal. But we live in a world where both things exist. Um, and once again, now, in thinking about Psalm 107, we see that actually the point is that this comprehensive and unlimited salvation is found uh, in God, but specifically in Jesus Christ, in trusting in Jesus Christ. John says, I have written down these things so, for you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, life in his name. So that's what it means. How, how might we apply these things in our lives today? Well, I'd like to make two points. Firstly, this passage today will help us to understand the times in which we currently live. And secondly, this passage today will help us to focus clearly on what it is that we want to see happen in the future. First point, this passage today helps us to understand the times in which we live. Because we live in a time and a place in which chaos and chance and randomness are still forces to be reckoned with. Accidents happen. Bad things happen randomly. It can be chaos out there. Uh, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes puts it this way, I've seen something else under the sun, it's just as bad. You know, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Uh, we have to live with chance and randomness because we live outside of the garden. The garden was uh, God's place of provision for his people. Uh, in, in a universe where there was still so much chaos and disorder, the garden was the place where you lived with God, where God reigned, a place of peace and order and harmony within a still largely disordered creation. But as you know the story, actually we had to leave. The good news, the good news is that we re-enter that place, the place where the Lord reigns, we re-enter that place when we believe in Jesus because that place is called the kingdom of God. And this is the mystery. Time and chance, randomness and chaos happens to us all. But when we put our trust in Jesus, we will see that he is sovereign over it all. He is in charge. He is in control. He is at work so that these things, sooner or later, will work out to our advantage. This is a mystery, but I know it's true. This is a mystery, but it calls us to trust, to have faith, to, to trust Jesus, 
even when scary things happen. And I, I guess what speaks to me very powerfully in, in this particular passage, for me, is just how the disciples, when they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, they were terrified. Uh, Jesus' own words, um, It's me! Don't be afraid! It tells us that the disciples did not recognize him. And, and, and they, did not, they did not realize it was Jesus. And what they saw terrified them. Uh, it's Mark and, and, and Matthew who supply some extra detail here. They tell us that what they thought they were seeing was a ghost. And we can flesh that bit out as well. According to local folklore, uh, phantoms or demons manifested themselves at the time and place that a boat was just about to sink. Um, how would you test that? I don't know. There was no survivors to report on it. But they believed, you know, that when a boat was about to sink in a storm, demons manifested, phantoms up upon the water. Uh, a very common belief in the ancient world. And what a terrifying thought. What a terrifying thought that just, in the, just, at, just at that time when the impersonal forces of chaos and randomness are conspiring to destroy you, the personal forces of evil turn up there as well. I mean, what chance are you going to have? But here's the thing. They are terrified because they think this thing is about to kill them when all along it's Jesus. It's a sign from Jesus, a miracle from Jesus, something for them to see and understand. Um, it speaks to me very profoundly that the thing that they thought was going to destroy them was actually Jesus all along. I'm, I'm not suggesting that when something evil enters your life, um, I'm not suggesting whether it's personal or impersonal evil. I'm not suggesting that when something bad and horrible enters your life and terrifies you, I'm not suggesting that's Jesus in disguise. Jesus does not disguise himself as evil things. But I, I am teaching and saying that in an analogical sense, actually we can trust when something evil enters our life, that even though we may feel terrified, Jesus is actually at work there too at work for our salvation. And actually, he is always way ahead of us. Way ahead of us. He knows what's going on. Uh, so that's my first point. When things go randomly wrong, trust Jesus. He really is in control, even though we live in a universe that is out of control. Don't be afraid. It's me. Uh, my second point is this. The passage will help us focus clearly on what it is that we want to see happen in the future. Um, because it would really actually it would be better not to have to live with all these accidents, chaos, and randomness. That would be my preference. don't know about you. Um, and the good news is that we don't. We won't. Not, not forever. Um, yes, for now. But soon and very soon, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming again. And this is how John... Uh, same author, but now a different book. This is how he sees that happening in the future. He writes in Revelation chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. No longer any sea. Bad luck, surfers. Um, <clears throat> But no, actually, I think we're, uh, we're to understand this uh, figuratively. We're to understand this uh, symbolically. 
uh, no longer any sea, means no longer any chaos, no longer any, any randomness. All of the eggshells of creation finally and conclusively swept up and swept away. John continues, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Well, um, Jesus walking on water uh, teaches us he is sovereign over chaos and randomness and chance. And uh, we trust that that's true and we see that that's true in our lives now as we put our trust in him. But we also look forward to the day when it's all finally gone and his full sovereignty over chaos and randomness and chance is once and for all uh, totally manifest. Uh, we speed that day. We bring that day forward in time when we pray for it, when we ask Jesus to come, when we make it our heart's desire, and when we live our lives in the light of that truth, working hard today to make today more like that day. No more crying, no, no more tears, no more mourning or pain or death, for the old order of things has passed away. That's what we work for, live for, and hope for, knowing that we do not hope for it in vain. The he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.